asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking about the power of knowing yourself with Rachel Cruz. Our guest today uh, hardly needs an introduction, <laughs> but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, Rachel Cruz is a two-time number one national best-selling author, financial expert, and host of The Rachel Cruz Show. Since 2010, Rachel has served at Ramsey Solutions, where she teaches folks to avoid debt, save money, uh, and how to win with money at any stage in life. She's authored three best-selling books, and her latest book, Know Yourself, Know Your Money, is set to release in early January. Uh, here on the show, we often talk about the why behind our money, and that is what this book is all about. It's all about uh, self-awareness, and we're happy to have Rachel with us today to talk about it. So Rachel, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me on. Rachel, we're so glad to have you on. And Matt and I, uh, every episode, we like to have a craft beer while we're talking about personal finances. It's kind of our splurge, what we spend money on now while we're also saving and investing well for the future. So our first question to every guest, our first question to you is, what is your craft beer equivalent? What do you like to spend money on right now while you're also doing an awesome job saving? Oh, man. Well, alcohol is a great answer. <laughs> um, yeah, I think my splurge... Gosh, it probably is cable. I love cable. I love TV. <laughs> nice. And I know my husband, Winston, he always is like, can we just be normal millennials and just stream everything? And I'm like, I know, but I just love the option of cable. I don't know why. I think I'm like a 60-year-old at heart. But uh, that, that that's probably my splurge that we spend money on every month. That's kind of cringeworthy, but we still do it. No. If, if, hey, if that's what brings you joy, then by all means. Is <laughs> there a right. particular genre or, or style of show that you like, uh, that you like to watch? Or is it just the ability to have anything yeah, at your fingertips? It's that to me. It's like, because I am, I love news. So I love any cable news on both sides of the spectrum. I'll watch the Fox News. I'll watch the CNNs. I mean, I like all cable news, um, especially during election time. I'm like hooked. <laughs> um, yeah, all the network stuff. I mean, the fact that we have sports available for Winston and then I have HGTV and Bravo and, you know, all the, I don't know. I just like all the options. Nice. Well, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about your book, Rachel. You know, so the new book, it's, it's a little bit of money and a lot of self-discovery. So why did you go uh, in that direction with this book? 
Yeah, for me, um, gosh, it's just like this whole new way of looking at money. And about three years ago, I kind of went on this own, my own personal journey, if you will, of just discovering more about myself. I feel like I took the Enneagram, which is this personality type tests, um, different personality tests. I read the book Birth Order um, and huh. just wondering like, okay, how did my birth order affect me? I was in some counseling and, and no big event caused me to do this. It just kind of was one thing after the other. And I just found it all so intriguing to really discover why I do the things I do. And out of that, I really became a healthier person. I mean, emotionally, I feel like I was such a better wife and mom and friend. And I was just aware of so much in my life. And I thought, man, how would this affect my money? If I take all these same principles I've been learning and these questions, what happens if I apply it to my money? And it was like this black hole of like endless content and endless (laughs) discovery. I thought, oh my gosh, why have I never done that? Because Mm. for 10 years of me teaching about money, you know, I, I talk to people all the time about how to budget and how to get out of debt and how to invest and how to give and how to build wealth and how to refinance and the how to, and knowing that that all is so important. But I also teach that personal finance is 80% behavior. It's only 20% head knowledge. So the head knowledge we know is such a small part to winning with money. Your behavior has to change and that's what causes you to win. But I never really dug under the foundation of, well, why do we have the behaviors we have? And so that's what this book is. It's just really discovering who you are, why you are the way you are with money, and then things you can do to change those habits into better ones. So you mentioned the Enneagram, and that's definitely like an interesting tool to help us understand ourselves, help us become a little more intimate with our own personalities. <laughs> um, are there any other tools that you found really, really helpful when you were kind of going down this process of self-discovery and anything, um, any of these tools that you would recommend people looking into if they want to kind of understand themselves at a deeper level? Yeah, I mean, I, I went down, you know, the whole Myers-Briggs uh, way, DISC, Enneagram. Um, again, I read that book, Birth Order, which was just fascinating. And then, I mean, I always recommend no matter who you are, what stage of life or whatever, is, is I would have a therapist or a counselor, but someone that has the education to be able to pull things out of you that like you had no idea was in there. I mean, all of that together for me was really helpful. But yeah, I would say those, I mean, just like if you were to Google something, I think the Enneagram was probably the best for me tool that I used of of understanding myself. Nice. Well, so on that note, so Joel and I, both of our wives are really into the Enneagram. Oh, <laughs> nice. Have, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they yes. have uh, labeled us, you know, I mean, I know it a little bit, but Joel is pretty sure that he's a seven based on what Emily has told him. Okay. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm a five based on uh, what my wife has told me. I keep going between a one and a five, so I'm not really <laughs> nice. sure. Nice. What are but, your uh, wives? So I think my wife is, She she's not sure if she's a one or a three. Okay. Okay. And so I love. I know so little about it that I I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I I think maybe she's a four. She, I mean, it, she's the individualistic, artistic. Yes, the four. Yeah. Is that a four? Yep, okay. Totally. Good. Yeah. Phew. Yeah. You got it. Uh, well, Rachel, what about <laughs> you? What, what's your number? Uh, I'm a three. A three. Yes, okay. but Which I one? really feel a three is the performer, the achiever. Okay. So I'm very motivated. Um, sadly, sometimes by by what other people think, but also the the achievement and being um, effective is like really big in my personality. Mm-hmm. I just want to be effective. And yeah, our biggest fear as a three is being worthless, which I totally feel that. I feel that not only in my work, but it's so crazy. Even like as a mom or a wife, like if someone sees me as like not being everything they thought I was, it's like, oh, I don't know, Mm. which is very, can be very unhealthy, but also you can use it in a healthy way too. Yeah. But I will say the seven, I rank really high up there too. So I can, I can turn into a seven pretty quick. I feel like. that seven wing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Matt knows the Enneagram language. You do. It's impressive. I hear it talked about so much. It's it's, it's, it's starting to rub off for sure. Well, not to correct you, Matt, but I will say the wing is is the number before or after your number. So I'm technically not a wing seven because I'm a three. But you know what? The fact you even said wing, I'm just really proud. I'm just really proud. I'm just really proud. You go to a seven in stress. How about that? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, Rachel, at one point in the book, you say when you know your motives, you're able to reach your goals faster. And I think, you know, knowing a little bit more about yourself in particular through the Enneagram or or what some of those some of those methods that you mentioned can be super helpful. But what did you mean by that, that when you know your motives, you can reach your goals faster? 
Well, you know why you're doing the things you're doing. So whether it's futuristic goals that you're looking at and saying, okay, in the next five years, I want X, Y, and Z to be accomplished, uh, or whether why, what's your motivation for buying the thing you're buying. I mean, any of those, any of those questions you're asking yourself of why am I doing these things, um, it does. It helps you realize, oh, wow, that is why I value certain things um, in my life. This is why I'm spending money the way I'm spending it. I mean, just, again, asking those why questions and getting underneath that foundation is, is a big part of understanding, okay, this is why um, I handle money the way I do and what I can do to change things I need to change. Hmm. Yeah, all that impacts how it is that we handle our money. And so does our family. <laughs> you have a unique family history with money, uh, as you point out in chapter one. You know, you were born into a household that handles money maybe a little bit differently than most folks. <laughs> uh, what did you discover, you know, during the writing of this book, even about your actual upbringing and how that impacts your relationship with money today? Yeah, your upbringing is, is such a huge piece of your story and, like you said, why you handle money the way you do today. And so looking back, I think it's so important for people to do that. Uh, some people are like, no, I don't want to go back to my childhood. Don't take me back there. Um, <laughs> but it is. It, it's crucial to realize, okay, this is how money was communicated in our family emotionally or verbally. Um, here are the things that my parents did well that I want to emulate. Here are things that, gosh, I wish I could unlearn from my parents because we all have that. But Personally, I mean, I was born the year my parents filed for bankruptcy. And so um, the first few years of my life, I obviously have no memory of that. But when my memories kind of start coming back, I'm like, okay, I now can understand the decisions my parents made, why they made them. And even going back and talking to them through through some of this book, because it's just, it, it's fascinating what my perception was during that time versus what they were seeing, what they were feeling. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting when when you wrote that. Um, just I, it brought me back to my money past um, and in my childhood. And so my parents actually went through bankruptcy when I was a teenager, when I was like twelve mm -hmm. or thirteen. And my sister, my sister's one was younger, one was older, and they both had a completely different experience with that than I did. But for me, obviously, I'm co-hosting a personal finance podcast. It had a big impact on me, and so I think that can be so powerful. I still have to go back to that and learn lessons because uh, it's shaped so much of who I am. I have to go back, go back and see, well, am, am I going in a healthy direction based on what I experienced in childhood or am I just reacting to it? And so it's something that um, I feel like I have to go back to over and over. Um, in your opinion, Rachel, what, what do you think we need to come to grips with in our money history that can help us not just maybe fixate on an event in the past, but then actually move forward from it in a healthy way? Yeah, I think pinpointing where you came from is important. So I write about these four money classrooms in the book. And, you know, again, like I said earlier, but the way money's communicated is either verbally, so you either had open communication or closed communication, and emotionally, it was either stressed or it was calm. And so when I was writing the manuscript, I was like, oh my gosh, this creates a quadrant. I was like, Jesus <laughs> gave me a graph, and I'm just so happy about it. But like, there it was. And so, yeah, if you grew up in classroom one, that's the anxious money classroom. And so this tended to be high stress level on the emotional scale and verbally closed. So you knew money was a stressful subject, but you couldn't really pinpoint why. Classroom number two is the unstable money classroom. And this is when it's verbally open. So you heard about money talked about, but it was high stress. So probably lots of conflict, lots of tension, lots of fighting. You may have heard your parents have the same money fight over and over again. They may have even fought with extended family members about money, but it was heard. Um, and then classroom number three is the unaware money classroom. And this is where it's emotionally calm, but verbally closed. So you kind of had your head in the sand a little bit when it comes to money. If you were in this classroom, you just didn't really think about it much. It just wasn't a thing because your parents didn't make it a thing. And then the fourth money classroom is the healthiest. And this is the stable money or the, I'm sorry, the secure money classroom. And this is where it's emotionally calm and verbally open. And in this classroom, you don't have to have a ton of money to be in this. Some people think, oh, well, if I was just wealthier, you know, I would be in classroom number four. And that's not the case. You could have $10, but manage it really well with open communication, or you could have $10 million. And so, so pinpointing, okay, this is kind of how I grew up, one of the four. And each classroom has its weaknesses. So classroom number one, I find a lot of people, again, money was a, was a point of tension and no communication. And so even being able to talk about money and having language around it can be really difficult, especially 
Kelly, if you're married and you know you have a significant other, that's part of this whole equation with your finances. Um, so diving in and talking about it just from the get-go is really difficult. And then classroom number two, that unstable money classroom. Again, the communication part is really hard because a lot of people just feel like, gosh, it's if I talk about money, it's automatically going to be negative. Like there's automatically going to be this instability that I'm feeling. And so sometimes it's just better if I just do my own thing. Classroom number three, you have to be very careful in the unaware money classroom that that ignorance is not bliss. Mm. And so in this, I find, you know, sometimes a spouse um, that was raised in this classroom, the if the other spouse is really money driven, they'll just let the spouse do it. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, you just take care of the money. I don't even have to worry about it because that's how you grew up. You just didn't worry about it and that feels good and that feels comfortable. Right. But I would say push in and still, gosh, be on the same team and and push into those conversations. And then that fourth money classroom, even though that's the healthiest, I would say that there, there can be a level of entitlement and a little bit of a level of not understanding the amount of sacrifice it takes to create that level four. So if you came out of that environment, you may think, oh, well, it's going to be easy and I'm going to be you know, smart with money because my parents were good with it. I have no worries. And that's not the case. You have your own <laughs> life and your own story. So you still have to engage and, and you'll probably experience some of the sacrifices and hard work your parents took on to create that classroom for you. Right. So then on that note, how like it's not guaranteed that you're automatically going to fall into the class, the money classroom that maybe you grew up in. Right. In particular, if you have a spouse or a partner who maybe came from somewhere completely different, what does it actually look like to move from one of these classrooms to another to where you're able to maybe communicate about it a little better or it's, it's, you know, a, a less emotional conversation? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, pushing to that that number four classroom, that secure money classroom is something I, I challenge the readers to do in the book that no matter how you grew up, you can always move to that fourth classroom. And so what it takes, it takes a level of control with your money to create that that emotionally calm household when it comes to, to money. And there's a tactical side to that, right? Like when you're on a budget, when you don't have debt, uh, when, you, when you're saving for the future and you have an emergency fund, I mean, there's tactical things you can put in place that create this level of, of calm and peacefulness, if you will, about the subject that can be so insane. And I think that the insanity of this emotionally when it comes to money happens when things are unstable. And, you know, you if you were furloughed or you lose a job and you don't have... Um, an emergency fund and you have bills to pay, I mean, that's going to create stress. But if you lost a job and you have no bills and you have money in the bank there, yeah, there's still a little, there's a percentage of fear of like, okay, I need to get money coming in. Yes. But you're in a totally different emotional position than someone else. So there's tactical things you can do to help the emotional side. And then I would say the verbal side, that communication it takes a lot of practice because it can be really awkward at first. It's a very vulnerable subject, especially if you're married um, within a family or even to your kids to start that. But I would say it make it it's a non-shameful topic. Like your money does not define you. And I feel like our our self-worth has become our net worth in today's world. Right. And that's not the case. This number right. that is attached to our financial world is not who you are. And to say, you know, what, I can put, I can kind of put this distance between me and my money, but to look at my money as a tool and to say, OK, what can I do? Um, to help this tool make my life better instead of more stressful. And so just talking about your goals and your dreams and your fears and just having conversations around the bigger picture of money is where you can start out. Ooh, you just touched on some good stuff there, Rachel. We want to ask you more about that stuff. In particular, we want to get into the role of fear in handling our money. And we'll ask you some questions about that right after this break. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers 
and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best-fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. And now a word from the show sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we're back from the break talking with Rachel Cruz. Uh, we're talking through her book, Some Know Yourself, Know Your Money. And Rachel, before the break, you know, we were talking about how so much of the way we view our money is because of our childhood experiences. At the same time, you know, you talk about our unique money tendencies. Uh, in the book, you offer seven different ones to think about. Uh, how does thinking about our money tendencies, how does that help us to understand money in a deeper way? What helps us, it reveals what we value in life. So one of the tendencies is when you spend money, do you tend to spend it on experiences or things? And I love experiences. I'm like, I all day will go out to a nice dinner or go on a great vacation or take my kids to the zoo. Like I will do an experience where my husband values things. He's like, you know what? I, if I work hard, I want to be able to use something over and over again because that's where my hard work has been and I want to be able to use it. And so, gosh, the first probably even year and a half of our marriage, we got married young. And I remember even just going out to dinner and he would never buy a drink. Like he would always get water. And I was like, Winston, have a glass of wine with me or like get a Coke. Like, I don't care. Like, like something. And he's like, no, like, I don't know. I'm not going to waste, you know, $10 on a glass of wine when I could buy a whole bottle at, you know, at the store down the street. And like for the budget, we're on a tight budget. And he's like, it makes no sense. And, and I wish I had this verbiage because I'm like, you know what? It's it's not because he's a saver and it's not anything like that. It's just he just genuinely does not value experiences the way I do. And so, I again, having that verbiage, I'm like, man, I wish I had that. And that frustration probably wouldn't be there as much uh, early on in marriage. But, yeah, I think it's, it's that kind of thing. So when you go through the seven tendencies, neither one is right or wrong. There's not like a moral compass that this one's better or that one's better. It really is just your natural instinct with money. What comes to mind when it, of your personality um, and how you relate to it. And so that just helps kind of put verbiage and again, these words to, okay, this is what I value and here's where I lean. And it's not right or wrong, but just knowing it helps you. 
Nice. So one of the other tendencies you had in there was the difference between a nerd and the free spirit. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times folks will be like, man, Matt and Joel are, are so similar when it comes to how they talk about money. But I feel like th- that's one instance where Joel's 100% a free spirit. I am totally the nerd. I'm the one that, I mean, every month, you know, I've got a zero-sum budget. Uh, I know where every single penny goes. I'd be content to never look at an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> for my whole life. <laughs> but you, like, love them, man. Joel's like, everything's going to be fine, you know, like, is, we just do the right things and everything's going to fall into place. But, uh, yeah, can you can you t- either talk to that example or is there another example that you could mention for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, the nerd and free spirit. It's definitely when it comes to money management, but I like specifically the budget. So, yeah, do you, just like you're saying, I mean, do you just thrive in Excel and you thrive of like the control of knowing yes. okay, this is exactly what's happening, the planning, the <laughs> <Yep>. predictability, <laughs> it's all there. And oh, there's, a, it just feels so good. Right. So th- that's the nerd. That's my husband. He loves it all where I'm more the free spirit, which is funny that I'm the one that talks about money day in and day out. But I am, I'm like, I, yeah. What was it? Joel or Matt? Who's the free spirit? I, I'm more the free spirit. I could okay. literally get by without a budget. Um, yes, as, yes. You know, I don't really need a budget because I'm I'm so focused on on saving. And so, yeah, I, but I feel like after that, and now that I've got the savings handled, like, I mean, how, really, do I need to be sl- uh, enslaved to a budget? I know. I know. Yeah. That, I mean, that's where I lean for sure. Where I'm like, oh, the details. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be fine. Like, if I go to Chick-fil-A one more time, I think we're <laughs> going to be okay. Like, it's fine. Like, I, yeah, uh, that's totally where I tend to lead, le- lean. And there's another tendency as well, spender versus saver. And what's funny is a lot of people think that a nerd is automatically the saver and the free spirit's automatically the spender. Well, that's not always the case. My, my parents are a great example of this. My mom is a free spirit, but she is a saver. My dad oh. is a nerd, but he's the spender. So <laughs> so like that one can change too, just like you guys are saying. But yeah, just knowing, okay, I am a, I'm a spender at heart. I, lo- I love spending money. I guess that's why I'm okay with spending money on cable because I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I love, I love spending money where Winston would be so content, so content, just saving our whole paycheck. And <laughs> like, we, I laugh all the time cause I'm like, he is like the most low maintenance man I've ever met. I'm like, he can walk into our pantry and make dinner out of anything. He'll like put peanut butter and flour together or something. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, just, let's just buy dinner. And it's like, I'm good. I'm like, man, you're such a saver. Oh, the classic <laughs> peanut butter flour ball. We call I, know, <laughs> I know, I know. So low maintenance. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about fear for a minute, Rachel. Uh, the role of fear in our financial lives is just, it's like a really interesting thing and you tackled it really well. Uh, most people, um, when we think about fear, it, it strikes us as a bad thing. But you talk about the positive effects that fear can have on how we handle our money. So like when in your estimation is fear good and why is it good? Yes, I interviewed Dr. Chip Dodd about this subject because I love his work on fear. And he talks about how fear is a gift and really fear is your na- your body's natural reaction that you are in need that you are in need of something. So when a fear rises up, it's just your body saying, "Oh gosh, I need help." Whether it's a bear, you know, running at you, and you know, fear comes through you, you have to do something. You need help in that moment, or it's a money fear. And I love that because anxiety. That that's in the unhealthy realm. I don't want us to get to a point where it's we're anxious and we have anxiety towards money. But just a just a level of fear, though, to say okay be able to name it and put things in place to help mitigate it. So uh, one of the top financial fears for women, actually, um, that in the survey done was the lack of security. So the question is, you know, if something happens, am I going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? That's the number one fear a woman has. And so putting these safeguards in place, just like what we were saying, but an emergency fund and getting out of debt. I mean, those kind of things set you up well where you're like, okay, yeah, if something happens, we are going to be okay because we've worked a plan. We're, we're healthier financially and this feels good, but but it can still be there. I mean, Winston and I, we've been doing this stuff for a decade now. We've been married 11 years. And so we are, we are on you know, the baby steps, you know, we're on baby step seven. We're on the last baby step. Like we, we have no debt. We have savings. We're funding our retirement. Like we are on on paper in a great spot over 10 years. But during the pandemic, I mean, gosh, I would say for sure, April, even into early May. I mean, I had so many nights I went to bed and I was like, babe, are we going to be okay? Like what is happening in our world? And on paper, I I shouldn't have that fear, but I did because there was such uncertainty. But just to be able to name it and to say, okay, no, Rachel, don't focus on fear. You have to focus on the facts. And here are the facts of what's going on. And God forbid, just say everything went to hell in a handbasket. 
you know, Winston's always like, babe, I will landscape yards. Like we, I, well, we, we are we going are, to be okay. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No matter what, like we are going to be okay. And so, yeah, focusing on the facts is, is a really important one during fear. And so for that, for that fear of, am I going to be okay? Some people's answer though, to that sadly is no, we wouldn't be okay. I mean, if I lose a job or I'm furloughed during the pandemic, we have bills and we don't have savings. 40% of Americans couldn't cover a $400 emergency in cash. So a fear in that in that instance is a really good thing because what that is saying is your body is saying, I need help. I need to do something different. If I live like this, I'm going to continue to be in this constant fear. So then you can say, you know what, no matter what, I'm going to put safeguards in and change the way I'm handling my money so that this fear doesn't rise up to the level that it is right now. So you can see it as a gift. And so whether it's a fear of, I don't want to end up like my parents. That's some, that's a lot of people's fear. And to see your parents' story and what they did and make different decisions than what they did. Uh, some people, it's a fear that external forces are going to cause me not to win. So like whoever's in the White House or corporate America or taxes, like all these things I can't control is going to cause me not to win with money. Okay, well, let's look at the things we can control. So so being able to name the fear and then focus on the facts of that fear is are the steps to really kind of push it down and, and to not let it take over your life. Right. Yeah. Well, so many of those fears are related too, right? I mean, you started talking about the like the fear of security or insecurity, and then you just touched on one of the other ones that you mentioned there, which was the external factors. And how many individuals have seen those two collide yes. when it came to the pandemic, right? Uh, let's, let's keep talking about fear. In, in your book, Rachel, you know, you also talk about, you know, not just a money fear, but this fear of man <laughs> in the context of, of how we spend our money, right? That's one of those unhealthy sides of fear. And so tell us how that fear of man can, you know, overcome us and can harm our ability to make smarter money decisions. Yeah, the fear of man is simply that you are you're you're going to purchase things, you're going to do things with your money because of what other people think. And that's a really strong one in our world today. I mean, man, it, it, whether it's on social media or just comparing yourself to someone else at work or within your family, I mean, it's a it's a big one. And so to say, to get to this point where you don't have a fear of what man is saying and just and to, for your own family to do things that a lot of people maybe make fun of you for or think you're strange, you're actually probably living the right way. <laughs> Cause I look, I'm like, you know, the Joneses are broke and if we're just trying to keep up with broke people. We're going to end up broke. So what are things that we can do and the level of sacrifice that we talk about, you know, to get out of debt and to do these things, it, it takes a level to say, I, I just don't care what you think of me. Like, I don't care what you think. And I get that a lot in my space. Like, I, I teach people no credit cards. And I people look at me like I have three eyes. And they probably talk behind my back. And they're like, she is the weirdest person. You know how many airline miles she's not getting because of this? Like, like all these things. And I'm like, you know what? I just don't care anymore. I don't care what people think. I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing. And you have to have that level. Because if other people and their opinions of you are driving your money decisions, you're going to probably be in a very average place in your life. And average financially in America is not a great one. So uh, there's a level where you have to say, you know, what? I just don't care what you think. I don't care that you think my car is crappy because right now it is a little crappy, but I'm going to buy a new one eventually <laughs> in life. Or like, I, I don't care what you think, you know, that we're not going on vacation this year, um, which I guess probably was a lot of people because of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> but like that used to be a weird thing. If people are like, what? You're not going on vacation? It's like, no, we're actually putting money away for savings or we're getting out of debt or, you know, whatever it is. So it's just that fear, um, that fear of man can drive a lot of our unhealthy money choices. Yeah, I think sometimes you got to hang out with other people who are trying to be weird in the same way, in the same positive direction too. That can be so helpful, right? The people that are that are like pursuing the same thing that you are because most people are pursuing the stock lifestyle <laughs> that leads them into more debt, um, into having less savings, into being less secure financially. And so, yeah, if you can put yourself around other weirdos, <laughs> money weirdos, I think that's going to be helpful. It's a good thing unless it turns into a cult. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Avoid know. that. Avoid the money weirdo cult. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, at what point do you describe the antidote to fear as contentment? Um, and so, yeah, I want to ask you um, specifically for yourself, how do you, how are you able to build more contentment into your life? And then how do you suggest other other people try to find contentment because you're right. I mean, scrolling through Instagram can instantly lead to the pangs of wanting more. Um, how do you, yeah, how do we build more contentment in our lives? Yes. Contentment is, it's such a huge subject and it's one I've, I've written about in the past because it is such a big part of winning financially. I think the first step of contentment is just gratitude. 
learning to be grateful and gosh, I mean, a heart filled with gratitude. There is no room for discontentment when you are just grateful with where you are and, and gratitude, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have goals or anything, but, but just to say, you know what, I am going to be so thankful for where God has me in this moment. And out of that gratitude leads to humility. And I love Rick Warren's quote on humility. He said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And so putting other people in the forefront of your mind and I think giving and generosity flows out of this, but just having a humble mindset where you're like, you know what? Life's not all about me. Like we we live in a world where we have a camera on front of our phones that looks at us to take pictures of ourselves. Like, I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. And I'm like, man, what if we just actually had an outward focus and say, I'm going to love and serve people really well. And life's not all about me. There's a level of joy that comes out of that. And then out of that humility really does come contentment, but it starts with that gratitude and humility and, and contentment too. It's not complacency. Um, I think it's just this peace in your heart with where you're at. And it, it's a, it's an ongoing journey. Obviously, once you have contentment. You don't have it forever. I mean, I have times where I'm discontent in things and parts of my life. And so going back to that kind of formula for me, at least helps drive forward um, that contentment. But it is when people are content, gosh, they, they live life with an open hand. They're more generous. They can, they save more money. Content people are okay sacrificing their lifestyle in the short term to get ahead in the long term. I mean, there's so much because that the amount of stuff that is told to us that we need this level of lifestyle that is told to us that we should have, uh, it's pretty unbelievable. I'm like, God, there's just a level of entitlement we probably all have to a degree, but we just keep thinking that stuff is going to make us happy. And we become a rat in a wheel for our whole lives, running, 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 getting nowhere, keep buying and keep, keep consuming bigger and better thinking, okay, well, maybe this thing's going to fulfill that. Or maybe, okay, maybe I'll be happy when I get this. And it's a game and we play it all the time. But I'm like, what if we just kind of cut all that out? I went on like a huge minimalist kick like two years ago. I was like, sell everything. I was like, oh, I'm so (laughs) done with it all because there, it doesn't like, I always say it's okay to have nice stuff. Just don't let your nice stuff have you. And we live in a culture where our stuff owns us. It owns us financially because we're in debt for it. And it owns us because of our emotional place of where we're at. We just consume and consume and consume. And so it puts us in a really bad spot, I think, financially and emotionally. So that contentment piece, oh, it's huge. Right. I mean, it just takes having the proper perspective on it. Um, I mean, and you're saying it starts with gratitude. So, I mean, literally, physically, what does that look like? You you know, you mentioned kind of being like holding this gratitude in your heart, but like outwardly, how do you even get to that point? Does it come with just maybe writing a few things down? Like how would you recommend to somebody to take those first steps towards gratitude? Yes. uh, Gosh, probably five years. It's been a while. Probably five years ago, I started this habit of writing down two things that I'm grateful for. And I did it on the notes app on my iPhone and I would wake up because every morning I used to wake up and like check email and scroll Instagram, like all before my feet even (laughs) hit like the floor, which is so sad to say, but like, that's where where I was. And I thought, God, I'm starting my day off like this. And And so I changed it up where I was like, I'm going to just think of two things I'm grateful for. I tried to do two different things each morning. And after like years of doing it, I'm still, I'm not consistent at it today. I should say that. But like for, for years though, I did it and, and I just had this running list of stuff and it was so helpful. So starting there and then I would say verbalize it and it's a little vulnerable, but like if there's people that you work with that you're just thankful for, say it. If there, if a spouse does something for you, show gratitude and be like, I see that. And I appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. Um, for your kids. I mean, I've started doing this with my kids. They, they help so much around or the five-year-old does more and more. And I'm always like, I just, I need to remind myself to tell her, thank you. I'm like, Amelia Jane, thank you so much. Like I, it's such a help to mom when you, when you help me get diapers for Charles or like whatever it is, but (laughs) just saying it out loud even changes your spirit and who you are. That's awesome. I love it. And yeah, I, I you know, one of our, our uh, best friends, when we have dinner with them, they always do like, uh, what was the best thing about the day? And what was the worst thing about the day? Yeah. And, and usually what the best thing about the day was, it's somebody in their family uh, who, who helped them out with something uh. or something they did together. And it's that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, well, I, it, it kind of got us motivated to start doing something similar um, at our dinner table. And I think those kind of acts of gratitude, one, they help build a healthy family, but they help remind you of what's important. To it you. does. And I think in our world today, too, I'm like, we are so 
so, I mean, I know the word divided is like thrown out all the time that like our country is so divided, but it really is. I'm like, I go on social media and I'm like, I'm dying at these comments that people make. I mean, it's just, our. it's so crazy. I feel like where we're living right now in our world. And when you just have a spirit of gratitude and you smile and you say, thank you. And you say, Hey, I'm grateful for that, that you just did. I mean that people don't hear that anymore. It's so sad to say, but they don't. And so, yeah, yeah you already it, stand out from the crowd. That's right. <laughs> I mean, seriously. That. I mean, uh, yeah, it's huge. So yeah. I'd like to say thank you for having me on, you guys, already. I, know <laughs> I was not just done. about to say, <laughs> Rachel, thank you <laughs> for coming on. Joel, Joel's like, Joel, I am thankful for you, buddy. It's <laughs> oh. <laughs> a great circle of thankfulness. Um, hey, Rachel, we do have a few more questions we want to get to with you, and we'll get to those right after this break. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All 
All right, we are back from the break, and we're talking with Rachel Cruz. Uh, Rachel, I love how you tie becoming a good saver to dreaming. Uh, in your book, you said that not having savings is a warning sign that you've not tuned in to your dreams. And so tell us about that and, and how meaningful dreams help us to become better savers. Yeah, I never really have attached the two before this book because as I was writing it, though, I was thinking, okay, asking the question, why do we save the way we save? And I do that with giving and spending, too. But um, on the saving side, I thought, well, why do we save what we save? And I thought, well, there's like the practical side that what I teach of the emergency fund and saving 15% of your income to retirement, all of that. But above and beyond that, why would you be saving and what are you saving for? And so I just thought back in my own life, what are things Winston and I have saved for uh, over the years of marriage? And it's all goals and dreams that we've had of like, whether it was a, you know, our first vacation we took as a married couple after our honeymoon, or it was building a home, like whatever it was, big or small, it was these things I thought, okay, we have these dreams in life and majority of dreams, not all, but majority of them have a financial aspect to it that you have to fund. And so um, I know for us though, we can, gosh, we can get to the end of a week and just think, did we even look up? Because I feel like you're just like, you're waking up and doing breakfast and getting kids ready and going to work and coming home and doing homework and bath time and dinner and oh, going to bed. And then you're exhausted and fall asleep and wake up and you just do it again. It almost feels like Groundhog Day. And if you, if you're not purposeful of saying, okay, no, you know what, we're going to just stop and look up and just say, okay, what do we want in the next year? five years, 10 years and dream. And when you have those dreams, you get excited about them and they keep kind of rising up Then you can say, okay, this one's sticking. This is something we really want to do. Then you can, then the savings aspect follows it because you're excited to save, or at least for me, uh, sometimes saving can feel like this black hole that I just, especially my like 401k and Roth IRA. I'm like, I know I can see the numbers growing, but it just feels like all this is going away for future. What is this for again? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I'm like, Oh, so, but these, these other dreams that are so much more tangible in the moments, um, they do, they help you, they help you save. And when you don't have something you're excited to save for, that means you probably don't have a dream you're excited about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so then when we do have the dream, how do we turn the dream then into like that money saving reality? Uh, I would say make make small goals and so figure out, okay, how much is this dream going to cost, whether it's maybe uh, moving to a different school district or starting a business or going on a vacation, like whatever that dream is that you have to kind of put it out there and say, okay, here's what I need for it. Here's the timeline. And then just break it down into small bite-sized pieces that you can have these goals, short-term goals to save up for it. Um, that's the tactical side. But I would also say to dig into the dream and ask the, those why questions. You know, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, one big goal we have is to go on a you know week-long vacation to Hawaii or like whatever the thing is. And to ask yourself, well, why do you want to do that? And it's like, well, I want to just be with my family. Okay. So you want quality time with your family. Why do you want that? Because I don't feel like I have it all the time because we are so busy. Okay. And so you kind of start asking those and then find the things that is fueling the dream and what can you do in the short term? So if it really is quality time with family and you're away, so you don't have the distractions of life, can you, it sounds cheesy, but seriously, I'm like that weekend, can you just go to the park with your family for three hours and get a little glimpse of having that dream accomplished on a, on a very small end, but asking your, your whys of the dreams and finding ways to accomplish those throughout the saving process. So you get to the big actual dream is important too. Yeah. Well, and you can, I mean, you've broken them up as well, right? So you've kind of talked about some of these shorter term dreams, like a vacation, something like that, like longer term dreams, I guess, are, you know, things more like maybe retirement, maybe stepping away from a high pressure job. But you also talk about these shared dreams, right? And that's where you dream together with, you know, your partner. You've been building your dream house together with your husband. Uh, Congrats on that. But, you know, achieving a dream with someone you love can be more gratifying and simultaneously more tricky. Uh, And so what tips do you have for dreaming well with the person that you love? Yeah, having a shared dream with your spouse is really key. I think we all can have our own individual dreams, which is fine, uh, because we all have our own passions and hobbies and things that we all love on an individual basis. But together as a couple, if you're married, having something you're working towards together. Yeah, and Winston and I's big one was, was this house and... Um, we were kind of nervous about it because we heard home building, you know, people like want to be divorced after and we're like, oh gosh, okay, (laughs) should we like enter into this? Um, But we had so much fun and I said it in the book, but it's true. Like when we moved into that house, honestly, the fact that we did it financially and the, and the goals that we wanted for it, that we actually did it, like we accomplished it was 
as not as more fun than moving into the house. I mean, we looked at each other so many times in the process and we're like, we are doing this. Like we <laughs> sacrificed and we put goals out there and we worked hard. I mean, I took extra speaking gigs. I mean, like we, I mean, we did things around uh, uh, ourselves financially um, that kind of felt impossible at the time. I'm like, can we really do this? But as we were hitting these goals along the way, it was so fun and it brings mm. you together because it forces communication. It forces unity. And when you work on the same team and you see yourselves on the same team versus enemies uh, through any, any part of life and marriage, like it's such a much more enjoyable process. And I think money becomes a wedge for a lot of people where it becomes the thing where, Hey, we're so different. We're so opposite. And so that's just going to automatically mean that it's negative and there's going to be conflict and it's not a thing of unity where if you flip it and say, no, 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 we are on the same team and yeah, we're different, have different personalities, but when we can find ways to work together and have a, a shared goal together, oh, there's so, there's such unity and, and such excitement to it. That's great. Yeah. And, and let's talk about too, about making change stick. This is a, another topic that you covered in the book. And when it comes to doing smart things with our money, you write about the difference between being involved and being committed. So how are those different? And what does that look like when it comes to our money? Yes, this was the part of the book that I was like, okay, if you're ready to kind of go on this journey of not under, not only understanding who you are and why you do the things you do with money, but to say, you know, I may have to change the way I've been handling money to actually get progress, the progress that I want. Uh, it may mean that you're going to just flip everything on its head and start this whole new path. And so because of that, I say, you know, you can be, uh, you can be involved, which means, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of do it ish, but I'm going to kind of do it my way. I mean, I'll see it's just going to take a lot longer to have progress. There's just not as much motivation there. But when you are committed and you say, you know what, this is the way I'm doing it. It's a little bit more of a black and white stance. But when you say, I am going to be committed to this and we are going to do it together, like no bones about it, we're doing it. The progress comes so much faster. And what happens in a married couple is there's usually one or the other. There's usually one that's really committed and one that's like uh, involved. And so, yeah, in that part of the book, I talk about when you, when you decide to change a behavior, if you are all in and you are committed, the progress you're going to see is so much faster than if you're just involved and on the sidelines. Rachel, last question. If you know, we go through with some of these steps that we've talked about, like obviously, hopefully, at least, <laughs> we will understand ourselves uh, on a deeper level a little bit better. But then how do we take that deeper understanding and then turn it into meaningful, lasting change? Like essentially, do you have some tips for us to, you know, to make sure that we are being committed? Yeah, I would say look at all of the, the behaviors that have caused you to get to where you are that are unhealthy. So look back and say, okay, yeah, I really am still taking this childhood fear with me or the way my parents always did things. I rebelled against it, so I'm doing the complete opposite. So maybe I went too extreme there. Or my financial fears are driving a lot of my motivations and I'm paralyzed and I'm not moving forward. Okay, I need to, I need to recognize that. Or maybe I'm extreme on one of the tendencies we talked about. Maybe I'm an extreme spender and I really, really don't save money. And I have to realize, well, I have to save money to get ahead. Or maybe one of the spectrums I talk about too, tendencies is status versus safety. And the why, why do you want to win with money? Is it more for safety or status? And, and either extreme of those is unhealthy. And so just kind of going through the book to realize, okay, I'm understanding who I am and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And these are the unhealthy parts of me. Just being able to understand that and name it, you end up not having to play whack-a-mole in your life. Like, I feel like sometimes it's like, yeah, I hit one problem down, but another pops up and oh, 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 and you're just going side to side when you can say, no, I'm going to look at me as an entirety, an entire person and to see, okay, here are the things that I value. Here are the things that I'm really struggling with. Here are my weaknesses. Here are ways that I can implement good money habits. I know I need to be a little bit more intentional with saving. Okay. I know that I have to forgive my parents for X, Y, and Z because I have bitterness toward them and it's affecting the way I'm like spending my money almost out of rage. I mean, whatever, whatever those unhealthy things are to be able to see it and to pivot from that and change from that are those tools you can put in your tool belt moving forward to become healthier in the way you view money overall. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us um, on the podcast today. We really, really appreciate it. And thanks for writing this awesome book, um, Know Yourself, Know Your Money. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find out more about this book that's set to release in just a couple of weeks? Yes. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Joel. Uh, you can go to rachelcruz.com or anywhere books are sold. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Rachel. Thanks, guys. 
Joel, man, what a great conversation we just had here with Rachel Cruz. Uh, her new book, Know Yourself, Know Your Money. It really is fantastic. Uh, in particular, I'm so glad that we touched, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode. But she talked about those different quadrants, the different you know money classrooms that we you know where we grew up talking about money in different ways. So incredibly helpful, and you can easily identify your household right as a kid oh, yeah. when you see it and, and how you grew up, like the classroom you grew up in, you spent all those years in, yes. uh, all of your formative childhood yeah. years massively influences who you are and how you handle money today. But at the same time, like she said, you d- you're not stuck there. Completely. And in, in, in particular, when you have a partner or somebody else who you're working with when it comes to your finances, unless you were raised in a very, very healthy household where you talked about money really well, chances are you're working towards improving. You're working towards progress, right? And even then, I love what she said. Like the, the biggest challenge to someone in that healthy quadrant is entitlement, <laughs> is <laughs> thinking that you're going to inherit the way your parents handled money. And that's Take, not always the case. Work. It takes yeah. work on your own part too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we're not going to rehash the entire <laughs> interview. Rachel was so great. But uh, yeah, man, what was your big takeaway from this conversation? All right. So I think my biggest takeaway is that people should dream more. I think you're. Dang it. <laughs> it was not going to be yours too. <laughs> yeah. I think ultimately, like your dreams um, and the the clarity of those dreams is such a massive game changer in how you handle your finances. If you have a big shared dream with a spouse, or if you have, if you live alone, whatever it is, a motivating dream can be all the difference in uh, getting you excited about saving your money or paring back yep. on your bills, right? <laughs> the dream is often just the catalyst to get you going and to make you happy to actually cut back on something that you normally would spend money on. Yeah. Um, and and I, we've found that the case in in our lives, Emily and I, and even before we were married, that dream of doing things uh, when I was a a solo dude was was so so helpful in influencing my why behind why I was saving more, why I was putting more money away for the future. And yeah, I totally resonated when when Rachel was talking about how every day can feel like Groundhog Day. Right? You're getting the kids dressed and fed, and then you know you're going off to work, and you come home, and you guys eat dinner together again, and you put the kids go to through bed, the whole routine. You're tired, <laughs> and so yeah, you you have to find those times. You have to carve out those times to talk about and think about your dreams in order to start working towards them, uh, and then that will, I promise you affect the way that you save and spend today too. So yeah, I don't know, Matt, what was your big takeaway from this episode? (laughs) Obviously it was going to be that one. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit about that though. Yeah. I mean, that's what she said. She said, if you aren't excited about saving, then you probably have a dream that you're also not excited about as well. Right. So once you find that motivation that can fuel everything, like that is the, the reason why it is that you're getting up. Obviously you have to pay the bills. There's sort of like this baseline dream that you're basically required to pursue. <laughs> to not get foreclosed on is one, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But beyond that, finding different ways to put those dreams front and center is, I think, the trickiest thing because it can be so easy to get caught up in just doing the motions of our daily lives. And when we lose sight of those dreams, uh, it can be easy to kind of, I don't know, fall off the wagon a little bit, not prioritize savings quite as much. Um, and so I guess that kind of maybe segues to my runner up when it comes to my big takeaway, which was early on, she talked about how essentially doing smart things with our money, it's only 20% head knowledge, right? There's a certain level of instruction that we need. We need to know how to be able to open certain accounts, keep track of our money, you know, the basics. But beyond that, the other 80% is all behavioral. And that's what this book's all about. She really speaks to behavior, how it is that we need to be thinking about our money. And a lot of it starts with knowing how it is that we grew up thinking about money, because that just influences how we handle it today. And so my encouragement, you know, from that takeaway is that if you've been listening to the show for a while, and if you read about personal finance here and there, you know, just like casually, there's a good chance you already know enough, right? <laughs> you, if you've listened to maybe a few episodes of this show, you know that you have to spend less than you make. You yeah, have yeah, to. The basic principles are yeah, uh, universal are simple. and they're simple. Yeah. Exactly. But beyond that, well, how do I actually put that into practice? Well, it's your behavior. And so I don't know. I think a lot of times folks can use knowledge or not knowing enough, not knowing all the tips and tricks. Uh, they can use that as a crutch or an excuse to not do the right things with their money. But today, what we're saying is that you probably already know enough. And to tie it back to your big takeaway, Joel, maybe what you need to do instead is to dream bigger. Yeah, man, for sure. And and one of the things, Matt, that you and I like to do, one of the small things that we love that we like to keep uh, front and center for us is having good beer. And today on the show, while we were talking with Rachel, you and I were enjoying a beer by Burial Brewing Company out of North Carolina. Uh, this one's called The Shattered Remains of Nothingness. <laughs> So quite the nihilistic title (laughs) for like a pepped up conversation, right? Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, this was a delicious beer, man. What were your thoughts on this one? 
Uh, dude, like you mentioned, this was such a good beer. This was an imperial stout, uh, and I'll mention too with coconut. And you know, we poured it. This is a bottle that you were sharing. Poured real thick. I mean, you could tell as you're pouring it that this was a thick-bodied beer, motor oil style. Yeah, n- yeah, not grossly thick, <laughs> <laughs> but like thick enough to know that you're you're in for a nice, you know, soul-warming beer in the middle of winter. And the first thing I feel like I noticed when I took a sip is that it was very sweet immediately. And, and a lot of times, what that means is that you kind of don't want to finish the beer, right? You get to the end of it and you're kind of like, oh man, I'm done with that. But for whatever reason, I mean, this beer has just such great balance, even though it is sweet on the front end, right? With maybe some of that additional coconut. The more I drink this beer, the more I want to drink it. You know, it's not one of these beers where I get tired of it, where I feel like my palate is completely fatigued. But uh, yeah, how about you, man? What were your yeah, thoughts? So the two words I wrote down for this beer were thick and sweet. Thick, thick <laughs> so and sweet. It was thick and sweet, but it wasn't overly sweet, like you said. Like it wasn't cloyingly sweet. I, th- I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Like first sip, I was like, oh no, this is maybe they kind of overdid it. But as we got to the end of it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is still really, really good. It was. Yeah, it was delicious. It still had like some nice roasty tones going on underneath it, and. Man, Burial just has not made a beer that I don't like yet, and and this definitely that's true was another great one. <laughs> yeah, it's so. the perfect kind of beer to kind of curl up next to a fire with. You know yes. what I'm saying? Oh, so good. Or curl up next to a Rachel Cruz conversation. I don't know, but <laughs> a uh, fireside yeah. chat. Exactly. Yeah, but that's gonna do it for this episode, Matt. And for folks who want show notes for today's episode, a couple links in, in particular to Rachel's new book. We'll have those up on our website at howtomoney.com. That's right. And if you enjoyed this conversation, if you have enjoyed our show, How to Money, and have found it not only enjoyable but helpful we would love for you to leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. That helps us to get the word out so that other folks are also doing smart things with their money. So Joel, that's going to be it, buddy. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.